0: The Lord says, as he is in this garden, that his soul is exceedingly troubled, even to death, and he tells them to stay and to watch and pray with him. There are significant events in the life of the Savior, who came to do the will of God, he didn't do his own will, but he said, all that the Father has commanded me to do, I will do. And that although the whole life of the Lord is obviously significant, um, there are periods of his life and moments in his life in ministry which are obviously of the utmost importance. We sometimes call these the crisis points in his life, and the crisis points. Are the crises of the Christ. There are several crises. We've looked at some of them already in my time in congregation. Um, Cecilia Philippi was one of them, where he tests the disciples, and we looked at length of that. That is a significant event, a crisis point where decisions must be made, uh, life altering events for the disciples and for the Lord. But there are really three main crises, in his life, it, apart from the cross itself, which is all basically the culmination and the great crisis, he actually calls it that himself in John's gospel. He says, "Now is the crisis of this world, and the Son of Man will be delivered up, and He will be taken up by God out of this world." And Christ Himself called the cross His crisis because it was world-altering. It changed history, and it changed the destiny of every soul that has ever lived. But apart from the cross, which is obviously a big part of what we're looking at here, apart from the cross that are free, there really is baptism, the transfiguration, and then this garden. And you'll notice how similar they all are. Um, it's a period of testing for him. He's basically alone in all of these situations. In the last two, he has three disciples with him, but the whole world isn't there watching him, the whole church isn't with him. He faces these things by himself, and you'll notice that God is very active in these situations. It wasn't as though Christ heard God's voice all of the time. Uh, Christ didn't see visions all of the time, or angelic appearances all of the time. Most of the time, he lived a life like you and I. And he relied on God's Word and the movement of the Spirit and praying to the Father. But you'll see how these three crises, when he was in the wilderness, he faced Satan alone. And Satan was allowed to be unleashed upon him for 40 days and 40 nights without food. And at the end of that crisis, the angels of God had to be sent to uphold him in his physical and spiritual frame and strengthen him and minister to him. And you'll see and we saw in the Mount of Transfiguration how a similar thing happens. He's praying and heaven seems to come down rather than angels, it's Moses and Elijah to come from the other side to be in his presence and to strengthen him before his task. And this garden is the last great crisis. And I would say that this is the greatest uh, Christ of his life up until the point of the cross. His temptation in the wilderness does not compare uh, to this. He has been in the upper room after a week in Jerusalem, teaching and debating with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And he has shown them up and he has dismantled their arguments and he has shown the word of God to be glorious so that they are silenced. And we're told that after he answered them all, they dared not ever question him again. There was that momentary intimidation the where they knew they couldn't catch him in his words or in his mind or in his soul because of the wisdom and glory of who he is. But a murderous spirit is through in Jerusalem. And as much as no one dared to ask him a question in the temple, and as much as they didn't dare to grab him in the temple, we're told that. The chief priest says, not while he is at the feast, lest the people come against us. There is a, a respect they have for him, because they know that he is greater than them, but their murderous spirit, and their thirst for his blood, and their hatred of all that he teaches, is brewing in Jerusalem for that entire week. It's not only brewing in Jerusalem, it's brewing in the heart of one of the disciples himself, in Judas's own heart. He's... He, removes himself from the feast and says their house is now desolate that's finished Judaism is finished your house will be destroyed there will be no sacrifices and no temple this is going to go to the Gentiles and he removes himself from them and is finished with them he never speaks to them again he never preaches publicly again he never prays for these people again he removes himself with his own to an upper room in Sistra when it is not known where they will be. And he uses these final hours to pour into their minds and souls the eternal truths of God that will eventually build these men into apostles that will transform the whole world. And he comforts them, and he said many wonderful things that are precious to many Christians, that the Holy Spirit will come, and that the Father is their Father. And that they are adopted into this father's family and that they can call out to their father. And he says, I will not leave you orphans, even though I go. Another helper will come in my place. And he will come and be with you until the end. He will dwell in you and you shall be comforted. But they are troubled. Because he tells them that one of them will betray him to death. And he says in front of them all, he tells Peter that Peter is going to deny him that he ever knew him. So they are troubled. He's going away. One will betray him and one is going to deny him. They are troubled by all of these things. They can't believe it. It distresses their minds. But Christ doesn't have time to explain it all to them. He says to them, you do not understand what I say to you now. And there's oftentimes God says that to us in our lives. And we want everything sorted and to understand the thing as it is at the time. And God says to us sometimes, You do not understand what I am doing now, but it will become clear to you at some point. And He says that to His disciples, I cannot speak much more with you. But it, as much as that is brewing in Jerusalem and as much as His disciples are troubled, that pales into insignificance. Compared to the trouble that he begins to experience here. They're not, you cannot compare them. And we know that he begins to be troubled, for he leaves the room and says, I cannot speak much more with you. Arise, let us go, for the prince of this world is coming. So although he wants to comfort them, like any great captain or general, although he wants to comfort them, they cannot be his utmost concern at that moment. His utmost concern must be what he's facing. And though he's concerned for them, he's thinking of someone else. He calls him the prince or the ruler of this world. And he leaves and prays with them as a high priest, as he's about to offer himself for the sins of his people he prays to the high priest in John 17 and he tells the father that he's coming to him he tells the father that he's going to offer these things he tells the father that he um, that he prays not for the world but for these disciples as their high priest he prays that they will be kept through this And he speaks with a clarity and a majesty as he stands outside of Jerusalem and prays in front of them. He prays with a majesty which only the Son of God can pray with. He speaks directly to God as though there's nothing to stop, there's nothing to impede his access to God. And the words in John 17 are majestic. But you will see how suddenly all of that changes. As he moves towards this garden, he says in verse 31 of our chapter, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And in verse 36, when he tells them to pray, he moves on and says suddenly that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Watch with me. Now you'll see the change immediately. In John 17, he's praying with calm and composure and majesty and clarity. And he says to his father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And now I come to you. I come back into your presence. And you will give me the glory which is rightfully mine. And I pray for these And I know you will teach them. I know you will guide them into all truth. And not only them, but everyone who will believe the gospel because of their witness. He prays for the whole of the elect, the whole church. If we are in Christ this morning, he prayed for us in that prayer those great words, not only these, Father, but all who will believe in me because of their witness, and that includes you and me. He is prayed great for us that we will be kept from the evil one, and that we will join him in glory, and be filled with the love of God in glory when we go there. You'll see how wonderful a prayer it is how it pours out to him as a person. But as he crosses the brook, the valley of over to uh, the hillside of uh, the Mount of Olives, which was filled with trees, and he, he knew well, because he used to stay in Bethany whenever he visited Jerusalem. He stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and he walked into the temple every day, and there was a garden on that hill that we're told by Luke that he often went there to pray. He used to, he would do that every night. Sometimes in Mary and Martha's house you couldn't find the Lord. You couldn't find him in the morning, you couldn't find him at night because he was in this garden. He was in this olive grove, shaded by the trees, alone in secret, praying. But this night is very different. We're told that he becomes deeply distressed and anxious and perplexed when he said, "My soul is sorrowful even to death." I don't think he means there. My soul is sorrowful because I know I will die. But he's saying my soul has suddenly become so sorrowful and anxious and perplexed. I feel like I am dying and I feel like I will be broken by this I feel the presence of death I feel that this may kill me why does the Lord respond this way as we think of the supper and as we anticipate in a few moments coming to the Lord's supper let's say a couple of things about why he was distressed, and as we do I hope that we will see as believers what this person has done for us and that we will know him more and that as we receive his supper that we will as we remember the Lord's death until he comes that we will do so with more understanding this morning and a little more understanding of what it entails for him for us to be able to take this exceedingly troubled and death. What is causing this? The word means a, a deep, overwhelming pressure and a sorrow and distress. Mark tells us that when he went into the garden, he separated some disciples and he took three with him, And as he entered the garden, he began to be sore amazed. Sore amazed. You can he's connecting that to what Matthew is saying here. And that word to be sore amazed means that he sees something that appalls him. He sees something that astonishes him. The word is sometimes translated and that that it horrifies someone sometimes used when people see the judgment of God. That when Ezekiel and others saw the wrath and judgment of God, they're seized with a terror. That's the kind of thing Mark says about Christ. The end this garden, and it's not, it's not that he's upset, let's forget that this is not him being upset. He sees something that horrifies him, that threatens to break him and unravel him and break his mind and soul. And I think that the answer to what he sees can be summed up in the fact that he mentions this cup. Verse 39. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The Lord God presents before the Son something he shows him, he gives him insight into something. And when, when when our Lord and Savior sees it, he is astonished and appalled and amazed and distressed at the sight of him. what does he see. I think there's at least two things going on in this garden, a conflict and a cup. And the two of them are connected let me just say something briefly about the conflict he goes into this garden for a conflict yes he had his conflict at the beginning of his ministry with Satan in the wilderness and we're told that he was there with the wild beasts and he fought Satan he fought him in that battle and disarmed him uh, with scripture this is different we know that there's a conflict with the evil one in this garden because he says in verse 41, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Read the verse from Luke that gives us some more insight into that. When he came to the garden, he said to the disciples, Pray that you may not enter into temptation he is aware of the presence of evil and the presence of Satan. And he knows that these three that were the promising ones in the disciples' band, these three that would build the church, he knows they're in great danger of falling into temptation because Satan is there as a lion ready to devour those three men. And he's there to make them fall into temptation, how much more for himself. This isn't mere speculation. Uh, Let me just establish it for you. Um, In that chapter, in Luke's corresponding chapter, Luke 22, listen to how much the Lord Jesus describes the the presence of Satan around these events. Luke 22, 53. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs, when they came to arrest him. When I was with you in the temple, you didn't try to seize me. They didn't have the boldness to seize them And he gives the explanation for why they're there and why they're seizing him. This is your hour, and this is the power of darkness. Now listen to that phrase, the power of darkness. He says that they're coming, bloodthirsty, into the garden with Judas. To take hold of him, because this is the hour the Father has appointed, and this is the hour where the power of the Father will not be present, but the presence will be the power of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, the prince of darkness, and all the servants of darkness. He was in the dark at night in that garden, but he's, he's not really... Looking at the sky, at the darkness, of the shade in the trees, or anything, he becomes aware of the presence, the spiritual presence of evil in that garden. And he calls it the power of a darkness. Then we, we see in the same chapter, listen to what he says to Peter. He says to Peter in verse 31 of Luke 22, Simon. Satan has asked for you he says this in the upper room that he may sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail Simon Simon is saying to him and I mentioned this last week and we don't need to go into it again you know what Simon said to the Lord I will not deny you I will not follow the way others might but I am determined not to Jesus says to him, you don't stand a chance here, sight. This isn't about what you are convinced that you can do. Not just that demon has asked for you, but Satan himself has asked for you. Remember Satan went to God and asked for Job. He asked to be allowed into Job's life. For every Christian has a fence in him, and Satan is like a lion. When you visit the zoo, and he's bound, and he's restricted as to what he can do. He can roar, he can bite. If you put your hand through the fence, you can be bitten. But ultimately, Christ protects us from Satan. But he tells Peter, here something different's going to happen this night. The, 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 the door that keeps the lion in is going to be left open by God. And he must be allowed to come out and attack the church and attack the Savior, we must battle him. And he says to Simon, he has asked. Could we say even in a way that's like praying, that's requesting Satan literally asked God the Father and said, Give me Simon. Just let me like hear Simon and I will sift I will put the wheat in the grain in a sieve and I will shake him. And if he's really weak He'll remain on top of the sieve, but if he's chaff in dust, he'll pour through it. And he can he can come to hell with me like the rest of the chaff. And they may say, "What well, a wonderful thing!" Simon is shown to be grains of and if you and I are shown to be grains of if we're seen to be the real grain, and we're kept in the sieve and it shows that we're real, yes, what well, a comfort! Shows that we're real. But which one of us likes to be shaken in the sieve? By the devil himself. And he, he does it. I, I have no doubt that he still requests of God that he shapes certain Christians, and that God does allow him nearness to certain churches and certain Christians and certain great works that God is doing in certain nations, that he allows Satan more room to operate, and it tests the church. It tests a Christian. Here, this may be something here that you and I will never have to face. Simon, this is the hour of the power of darkness, and Satan has asked for you. My question isn't Satan has asked for the teacher. He has obviously asked for Christ. Ask for Christ in this garden, and ask for him on the cross. Satan doesn't come to try and attack disciples unless he's going to come for the king himself. And Jesus is aware of all that Satan is asking for, and he says, The Prince of this world is coming. We we have to go to this garden for the Prince of this world is coming. You'll know in the same chapter, not only was Simon shape, but we're told awfully that Jesus passed the bread to Judas. And it says that he took it, and when he ate it, Satan entered him. So Satan has asked for Simon. Satan is in the band to arrest Christ. The power of darkness is present, and he's even in the upper room. Satan is in the upper room. It's not only Jesus and the disciples that are there. Jesus is there with the glory of God inside him. The other disciples are there in the spirit of Christ, that there's someone sitting at the table with them. And Satan has a seat at the table too. How instructive the it? And that's what the first Lord's Supper was like. We have these kind of views. We look at Da Vinci's painting of the Lord's Supper. And we have this idea that they're all, they're all there. And it's this beautiful picture. And, and Judas is this kind of dark, seedy character and it's not it doesn't portray real life at that table Satan is there as a hungry lion looking across the table at the son of God because he wants to consume him and devour him and his best tactic is to use Judas so you'll see from all of these uh, instances you'll see that Satan is very active at this time the Lord God did allow a greater demonic activity during the lifetime of Christ, there's no doubt about that you don't see a lot of demon possession and exorcism before the ministry of Christ and you don't see a lot after Paul did it sometimes but it's not something that we see as as an outspread problem uh, today and it, it certainly wasn't in the Old Testament we infer from that that when the Son of God was born and when he was there present, that the Lord God allowed the kingdom of darkness, a greater liberty, to reveal itself. As he revealed more grace of his salvation and revealed himself in his Son, he allowed his enemy to also show his heart. That this, the moment of battle, in battle, when you stand on the field, There are soldiers hiding in trees and hiding on the other side, and there's a lot of concealment. But when the battle begins, everyone has to show themselves. And the the enemies run at each other, and then you see who's really in conflict. That seems to be what's happening during the life of Christ. And it's especially concentrated and powerful and demonic this night. And Jesus obviously speaks about it. So when he goes into this garden. He goes from the blessedness confidence on his and confidence of the earthly prayer and he enters this garden and the enemy is there. And it wouldn't it just be Satan. It would be Satan and many of his assistants, many of his soldiers, the kingdom of darkness, present in this garden to attack Christ. And I'm sure he's very aware of it. We're told that, He looks at the cup and he asks for it to be passed from him. We're told that he's deeply in agony and stress and that he goes back to the disciples and finds them sleeping and he tells them to watch and then he goes back with no relief and then he falls on his face and he cries out and Luke tells us he's in agony as he prays. His old enemy is there. This is an assault the presence of malice and darkness and evil in his garden, to come at him, to turn him from his mission, to unravel his mind, to get him to think harsh and blasphemous thoughts of his father, to pressure his soul in a way they had never been allowed to do before, and to pressure it and test it, to test his soul, to see if this soul will, will eventually sin after 33 years. For if they get him to sin in his thoughts and his words, if they get him to fail, if they get him to embrace unbelief, then salvation unravels, and all the world will be lost if Christ sins. And Satan also thinks his that he can get this person to sin. He comes at him, and he pressures him, And he fills his mind with trouble, and weighs out and other options. You can see in Christ's mind that he says, if there's another way, if there's some other way for me to save the Father, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Satan is close to him, and we're we're told actually when he tempted him at the beginning of the Gospels that he left him until an opportune season. Satan slithered away from Christ in the wilderness, ashamed. He thought he could make this man break, and he shouldn't break him. And Christ resisted him and rebuked him, and he left, and it says he left for an opportune season. Here is the opportune season. And as this darkness and the presence of Satan and the presence of evil, the insinuations of this fallen evil, malicious spirit attacks Christ, Christ is pressed into breaking point as tempts him to try and go aside from his mission. And as our entire family fell in a garden at the beginning of the world, that even then we see the nature of God in that perfect world allowing at least a little of Satan's kingdom to enter. He he there is a proof actually that Satan is definitely in this garden. If he was there with Adam and Eve, is he not there with the Son of God? And as God allowed Satan into that garden to question Adam and Eve, to tempt them, to break them, so here is the second Adam, the last Adam. The Adam by which we fell, our father, who we believe is in glory and justified by the grace of Christ. That Adam who was innocent and who knew God face to face, he fell without sin in his heart initially. He fell by these temptations and we see Christ not upright like Adam was in the garden. Not there with his wife to be a support and a help to him not surrounded by fruit and light and beauty and perfection not with a wall and a border around the garden to show that God protects us, with the presence of God walking with them in the cool of the day in that garden Adam had everything he needed to not sin and we see our weakness that we sin if God created that garden in this sanctuary right now if God created it around your home perfection, sinlessness, purity, all provision, him walking with you in the cool of the day, appearing to you even. Do you think you would have sinned? You would sin. We all sin. We all find sin too interesting. We want to know it for ourselves, and we rise up and cry against God, and we say, I'll try this once, but I want to know good did evil for myself. Adam fell with everything for him Christ is being tempted to fall here in this garden but he doesn't do it with all of that help he does it alone with sleeping disciples he does it in the dark he does it with the whole church against him he does it with one of his disciples having betrayed him he does it with no visible representation from God no voice from God to help him and he doesn't do it upright in peace of mind and heart, Adam had. he does it on his face, crushed down into the ground. The, sun, the curse for the, the serpent was to slither across the ground in the dust. And here the creator of the serpent has his face down in the dust. God removes from him the bubble of all all the help he gets from his divinity, all the knowledge he has from it, all of the strength of someone exalted and mighty, and he's stripped of it all, and here he is in utter weakness and humiliation. He has no weapons that he can use. He has nothing he can call upon that will make him immune from this powerful enemy that's present, an intelligent, malicious enemy, Christ is as low as anyone can go and he, even in his brokenness and his weakness, has swept blood and he is in agony. Somehow, he resists the one who has made us all fall. Christ resists. He goes to this garden for a conflict. He is exceedingly sorrowful and appalled and amazed because he gets an insight a very important insight into the mind and insinuations of the devil, and that can but trouble Christ, a holy one who loves goodness, who is God Himself, who loves goodness, and who can look upon iniquity. For Him to even interact with Satan is a deep distress. To look into the infernal of Satan's mind. For Satan has no common grace, no goodness, no redeeming features. We are kept, all of us, even as sinners, inside and outside of Christ. We're all kept from being as bad as we could be. Satan is not kept. There is nothing. There is not one atom in Satan that is good, gracious, or reasonable. He, he is a predator. his instinct is like a predator like a lion, a lion doesn't think about whether it should attack, it just does attack, it doesn't think about it Satan hates us he hates the image of God in us, and he doesn't reason about whether or not he should let us go he can't help it, he sees the gazelle running, and he just pounces upon it, and he tears it to shreds, there he is with Christ Christ has to look into look at Satan, and hear him, and it deeply distresses him. I believe that's part of this cup that Christ must bear and drink. But let's say something about the cup itself. Father, and let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I desire, but as you will we know this cup this uh, cup is mentioned in the word of God and mentioned in the Old Testament as the cup of God's wrath and that's really what's going on here the Lord Christ sees the kingdom of darkness enshrouding him he's exceedingly sorrowful unto death And he begins to be amazed and horrified. What does this cup represent? What is going on in this garden apart from the presence of Satan that causes this reaction to Christ? I would say that there are two things connected to this cup. One is that in this garden, Christ is becoming the sacrifice, he's becoming the sin bearer. That's the first thing. The second thing is that he's given a clear insight into the contents of God's wrath and what, what awaits him on Calvary itself. himself. So he becomes the sacrifice here. You might ask, well, what, what does that mean? Was he not a sacrifice his whole life? We know he's, he was going to become our sacrifice. Well, um, he knew he would be a sacrifice, and he was—he had knowledge of what that meant but he hadn't experienced it he knew from the word of God and he knew from the temple sacrifices and as he read his old testament he knew I am a sacrifice but here he becomes that sacrifice that, let me explain it like this just before he came in here he prayed as high priest For us to be reconciled to God, there must be a high priest. And the high priest has to slay the animal. And he he has to go into the temple with the animal and offer it. And we need both to be saved. We need a high priest and we need a sacrifice. And the high priest was cleansed outside the temple. He was washed. And he had to be a certain age and a certain conduct. And he had to be a righteous man and all of these things. And he was a a type of Christ. You, that is a picture telling us to wait for this great high priest in John 17 as he leaves the upper room he prays as a high priest he doesn't pray as a sacrifice he doesn't speak about offering himself he he prays on behalf of his people he intercedes for his people that is what high priest does but I think the answer to the great change in atmosphere when he enters his garden is that the cost of that sacrifice is put before him. And in this garden, he is shown what it means to be a sacrifice and I believe he becomes the sacrifice in this garden that just as in the Old Testament sacrifice the priests would pray and he went in to intercede for the people, but he took an animal with him, he must have something to offer. And what he did was, when as he prayed for the church, as he prayed for Israel, He acknowledged their sin, and even his own sin. Israel has sinned all year. And on this day of atonement, this day of sacrifice, all of their sins are going to be placed on this animal. And as he prayed for Israel, he prayed to the Lord and placed his hands on the animal, that the sins, the guilt, would be transferred to the animal then he took the animal in the scapegoat the sin bearer the one on whom the guilt of all the sin was and he slayed the goat he slaughtered the goat that's what's going on here Christ is outside and he prays when he comes to the cross for his people and in this garden the guilt is transferred he, it's shown here in the form of a cup and he sees it and he's horrified he is becoming a sinner there that's what happens you, you know that what happens next in this garden is as soon as he's finished the season of prayer my betrayer is at hand verse 46 and then abandoned men come to seize him and they bind him as a criminal it's at that point that he's treated as a sacrifice. He must then um, not only know he's a sacrifice, but willingly give himself as that sacrifice. Christ knew his whole life that he was a sacrifice. But in this garden, the Lord brings before him all that that means. And he has to look at it and say, I am willing put it on me. You can't force someone to die for the sins of his people. He must do it because he wants He has to exercise his will. And you'll as soon as he accepts it, he's arrested, he's bound, he's beaten, he's sat upon, he's taken before tribunals and pronounced guilty. And he's mocked and he's cursed and then he's taken to Calvary and the Father deals with him on Calvary. This is the point at which he accepted I am sacrificed, time now. Tie me up. I willingly tie myself up and you can take me. So, if you're asking, if you want to know more about your Lord, He is your Savior, if you're in Christ, if you want to know more about what He has done for you. He went to this garden, He became the guilt of all His people, millions of sinners. He was made sin, Paul says. He was made to be sin for us that we would become the righteousness of God in him. In this garden, he becomes sin. He becomes the sin bearer. He becomes the curse. He's shown these things in the garden. He's shown all that is in the cup that he must drink on Calvary. And he can see what's in it. He can smell it. He tastes a little and anticipates a little of what it means and it glorifies it because he sees for the first time what it means to be made sin. He sees for the first time what is in that curse. He sees the guilt as it's laid on him judicially. He sees. The, the connected penalty and conscience and everything of all the sins that people throughout the ages have committed all of our sins are there in that garden and they're in that cup and the guilt of them and the terror of them and the disturbing nature of them, the poison of them, the anger of God against them, everything that happens in our conscience when we are made aware by God at certain points of our sin and you'll all have experienced that when God pierces the conscience, we see the sin, it disturbs us, we have no peace, and it just hangs there, and it's like a thorn that's producing poison into our souls. Well, imagine what it's like for Christ and that for the whole church. He becomes our guilt in this garden. He becomes the sacrifice, but he is also... Um, He is given a vivid sight of the sufferings that he will entail. Not just that he's guilty for his sins, but he is shown in this cup what God will do to sinners. The wrath of God, the justice of God. The opposite, um, the opposite thing towards God's holiness, the opposite attribute. When you see how holy and good God is, how opposed He is to sin, how His nature just destroys sin, you see His purity. You swing it right round to the the other side of the strict merciless just dealing with sin that's because of God's goodness we think that it's severe because we're not good our judges aren't good our presidents aren't good our senators aren't good not really we don't understand at all Awful sin is really. We make excuses for it, we embrace it, we we lather ointment on it. When God goes to sin, He doesn't need to be uncomfortable and make excuses for it. God is completely apart from it, and He's the only objective person. He can look at it and see exactly what it is, and He weighs up what it deserves, and He will bring the punishment for what it deserves that's what Christ sees here. What the prophets call the cup of the judgment of God. The cup of trembling. The cup of wrath. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel God has always promised us. He promised that he would pour out a cup of wrath and trembling to the nations and they will drink it. One of the Psalms says, the Lord's hand holds a cup of wine, a powerful blend and the wicked will drink it until the end we have to understand this this attribute of our father we have to understand that this this is essential for our salvation we're simply not saved if we don't think God has wrath against sin I don't know what we ask God for and when we ask him to save us I don't know what we ask him to save us from for Christ told me to flee from the wrath to come, and that I can't meaningfully love my Lord and Saviour unless I know what the wrath to come is. How can I bless him and love him and meaningfully understand what he has done for me if I'm not willing to see what he saved me from? And it's so hard for us to enter into it, but... God doesn't allow us to avoid it here's the, the three gospels here he was in this garden and he's trembling before a cup and we need to know that that cup is the cup of holy fury of the horror being cursed of sin even that as Christ looks at it and it becomes real to his mind and as God reveals to him what the cross entails he sees really a portion of hell that's what he sees for that's what God will punish him with when you see him cry my God my God why have you forsaken me when you look at the cross we're not looking at physical death as important as that is to save us heart it is that we're not looking at emotional disturbance we're not looking at tiredness or pain even those are there and they're part of it, but it's not the heart of the thing The heart of the thing is that God is cursing his son. It's his soul that is the center of the suffering. And he, what's going to happen on the cross is that God will stop being his father. God will not deal with him as a father deals with a child in the house. God, God shrouds his fatherly position and he, he comes to Christ in the office of judge. And he doesn't look at Christ as a son. He looks at Christ as the, the person who is personally responsible for billions and billions of sins. Do you understand that, Christian? That's salvation. We need to know that. We need to know that's who our Father is and that's who our Savior is. Our Father is not a cuddly toy. Our Father is a Mr. Nice Guy. Our Father isn't the one who just blesses and keeps us and helps us. Our Father cares about justice and the morality of a soul. And sin is a problem that is as old as the world and God has to deal with that. our sin is a problem. And he, he looks away as a Father and he deals with Christ as a judge to a criminal. And The cup that Christ was to drink on that cross contains the righteous judge, his sentence for all that I've done wrong and that you've done wrong in all our thoughts and words and actions. That's what's in this cup. Christ knew about this. Christ knew his Old Testament. Christ had an awareness of the holiness of God that no one ever had. Christ was nearer to God than anyone ever was or will be. But even for him, when God reveals something of the smell and the taste of what's in that cup, even Christ who knew that there's judgment in it. It's different for him to know it and for him to see it. When he begins to see the pain of hell, when he begins to see the hopelessness of hell, how there's no hope there, no hope of release, when he begins to see in that cup the unbridled and perfect anger of a just God against rebels and the sexually immoral and the proud and the gossiper and the idler and included everything on the list. We think our sins are little stings that we can just rub out. We take an eraser and just rub them out like we make a mistake when we're doing math. We think we can just rub out the sins. We have no idea what sin is. I have no idea what sin is, really. We can explain it to each other, but this garden tells me I don't really know what sin is. Because the Son of God looked at my sin and fell on his face and asked God to not bring him to be judged for that sin. That's how disgusting and horrible, eternal and hellish my sin deserves. When God looked at what I should be punished for when the son looked at what I should be punished for, he was horrified. He is horrified at how I have lived my life and how you have lived your life. I know these aren't popular doctrines, and there will be another time in another week to speak about his love, his grace, his adoption, his mercy. But what is mercy if he's not showing mercy for something like that? We, we abuse and... We, have, we, we basically insult his mercy when we make so little of it. God is merciful because he went at the little word I said and it doesn't really matter. It does matter. Our, our, our thoughts, our pride, our gossip is in that cup. And when Christ sees why we've lived our lives and God tells him this is the hellish penalty for it. Christ is this me. Let this cup pass from me. Let it pass from me. We thank God that it didn't pass from him. Do we see something in the Savior here of, of, of a weakness? of a lack of love and a lack of obedience to God, that he would ask us a thing. we build Christ into a robot almost, with no emotions and he? he just says, says, yes, God. Yes. Yes. That everything God asks him to do, Christ says yes immediately, and it doesn't affect him. Of course it affects him. How can a human mind, remember it's human, a human mind and soul, look into the pit of hell and be unmoved? And Christ doesn't sin here, and he tells, he's not trying to get out of it he looks at it, and for a holy mind and a holy soul and for someone who loves God so much and loves the presence of God so much, when he looks at the pit and the dump of hell, his soul says, if if there is some other way in the will of God to save this church, then surely that is the way. How can this be the way? His mind cannot kind of look at this and just say, Yes. It straightens him. It, it, it pierces him. It stretches his soul. He's obviously in agony. We've never seen him like this. We've never seen God behave like this. Father, if it's possible. Take it from me. Nevertheless, not what I desire, but what you will. He goes to seek some kind of presence of his disciples. To seek some kind of human connection. Because God isn't in the garden. The Father isn't in the garden. It's only hell that's in the garden. And he goes to these other human beings and they're sleeping. Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch lest you fall into temptation. And then it says he goes back and he falls into the space again and prays the same thing again. If this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, nevertheless no more I will but what you will he's looking at it and his hands kind of are ready to take to, to hold the cup and say this is mine but there is a great battle going on we see how intense it was because Luke tells us our angel appeared to strengthen him the father can't control himself but he will send an angel Someone in the lower ranks of the angelic world in glory. Not an archangel, just an angel. We don't even know what the angel's name is. Just something from heaven. And it says, The angel appeared to him, strengthening him. And we think, Well, that's it over. He saw something ugly and disgusting, and it disturbed him, but the angel strengthened him. But Luton tells us awfully that the angel only strengthened him so that he could see more. So that it wouldn't destroy him and break him. As he peers out of this world into the judgment of God and the spiritual world, and he gets a taste of what the guilt of sin is, and he sees something of what hell is, our Savior is almost obliterated by it. And the angel comes to give him some strength. And Luke tells us when the angel had strengthened him, he prayed all the more and was in great agony. Why did you do it, Lord? We praise Him that He did do it. What a wonderful comfort and consolation it is, although it disturbs us, that we look at this garden from the outside. And that's the point. That He was there we weren't there what a wonderful consolation that when I consider and look at my life and count up and stack up all of the disobediences and sins and and, and evils and falling shorts even things that we might call good and holy the way we pray, the way we sing, the way we listen, the way we preach the way we fellowship with one another, the way we interact with other Christians—all of these surely in our mind are baptises new things. But how much sin is in it all? How much selfishness, self-seeking, all these things? What a what a comfort for any of us this morning who needs it to look at this. Because as the, as disturbing as it all is, this is what it says: that there is someone. Who loved me so greatly and deeply and eternally that He looked at the serious implications of the way I have lived when I'm lying to Him, push aside side? And I think it, it's not—it's it's not going to be paid for. When we think life is just fun and we can do whatever we want and there's never going to be any consequences because we're good anyway. When I look at my life and take a real look at how many sins there are, millions. I think I, I preached on this once and I think I worked out how many times we would sin sinned 10 times a day and we lived for 80 years. And it was something like 200,000. Each of them deserving God's judgment. We aren't small sinners, we're not. What a comfort to, to see him on the edge here and for, for the fact that the cup did not pass from him. Because if it had passed from him, you and I would have done it. He didn't pass on and he took the cup. He took it with him and they arrested him and he began to drink and sip of it. And on the cross, he drained it to the dregs. And you and I, if we are in Christ, will never pay for our sin. We may be chastened for it, we may be uncomfortable for it. That really awful things may come into our lives for various reasons, but if I'm in Christ and I pray and believe that it is so, then I, I'm never going to taste hell. I'm never going to taste absolute hopelessness. I'm never going to taste. I'm never going to know the presence of the evil one like that. I'm never going to see the anger of the judge ever. He may be angry as a father, but I'll never see the anger of the judge. But it was seen here, for you and me, that attack from Satan, that loading on of guilt that must be paid for, and the contents of a wrath-filled cup. If you are a child of God and you love the Lord Jesus Christ and he is your brother, you are free from it all. And that's a testimony to his grace. And when we take the Lord's Supper, I will say um, a couple of things more about uh, the Lord's grace towards us as we do that. May God bless these uh, thoughts upon his word. Now let's stand for a moment and pray. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we ask now that as we have looked at these solemn things, when you command us to remember the Lord's death until he comes, and as we read from Isaiah of his sufferings, how important it is for us to understand what the Savior has done. And we praise you and bless you that these sufferings are not ours, but they are his. And what a love he has that you would do such a thing. And what a love you have as a merciful God and as our Father uh, that you looked upon us as your enemies, and you took mercy on us and adopted us into your family. What a great and marvellous act of mercy from the king of kings, that you are the king of all things, and you are deserving of all respect and dignity and worship, and you looked upon us as broken, even filthy sinners, and you pity us on you showed us your mercy and you gave us life in your Son. And as we come now to meditate more upon his death, and as we bind together as a group of your people, and as we commune with these things, we ask for your grace in heaven and your presence in it all. For Christ's sake we ask. Amen.